Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. All right. Take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. I want to spend the next three weeks talking about a topic that is near and dear to my heart. I've been talking about it for two decades or more now, and I'm going to keep talking about it. I want to talk to you this morning about life together. And today we're going to look at the purpose for life together to know and be known. To know and be known. You know, reality TV is something that has moved through over the last number of decades and, and has taken many kind of different uh, manifestations and forms in the shows that have come about. But I think it, more than anything else, has taught us a lot about people. We see reality TV that is anything but real or reality, but we do learn about people in these shows And of course, some are better than others, uh, but one that I have found to be my favorite is uh, one called Alone, where they go out into the most remotest parts of the world, and they're given 10 items to try and survive, and whoever survives the longest, you know, wins some huge stash of cash somewhere. But Alone is interesting to me, but I I enjoy all the kind of uh, bushcrafting that they do and the survival techniques that they show and are able to demonstrate. But more importantly, I enjoy watching the people. I am a forever people watcher. And without fail, from the moment the boat or the helicopter drops them off and and flies away from them, you can hear it in their voice. Wow, this just got real. Nobody's here with me. I, I would propose you really learn two things about human nature from not only alone, but other TV series as well. Number one, being alone drives us crazy. Many of them go crazy. And the very few, one or two that I've seen that didn't go crazy from being alone were crazy before they got there. So, you know, you're like, just leave them out there. Don't go get them. They're fine. They're fine. And if not, the world may be better. So just leave them. But there's a second reality, uh, not about alone so much as some of the other reality TV shows that you can watch that I don't recommend, that when we're not alone, but with others, we go crazy and destroy ourselves or them when that community in which we formed ourselves has at its center something other than Christ. Pleasure, recreation, comfort, etc. Whatever it is, when that's the reason you're together, it literally drives you crazy to destructive patterns and behaviors. And so I draw this conclusion. Humans neither know how to live with themselves or others in a healthy way without Christ. And that's some of my premise that I introduce with today. Nothing will ever replace, will compete with, nor compare to Jesus Christ. There's nothing like knowing, yea, as we will see today, being known by Christ. And so here's what I want to propose to you today. Relationship with God produces a life of authenticity together to be known in Christian community. Relationship with God 
produces a life of authenticity together to be known in Christian community. Let's move to our text for the morning. I'm only going to read two verses, Galatians chapter 4. I'll begin in verse 8 and read verse 9. Paul writes to the church at Galatia, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? May God bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of his word today. Galatians is what you might call Paul's condensed treatise on salvation. Romans is his expansive treatise. Galatians is more of the condensed form. And these two verses form the very heart of the letter of Galatians. It is the very heart of the gospel. And from the beginning, Paul is arguing against the errors that had crept into their doctrine, their beliefs, and even their practices. And what was that error? Well, they had made the gospel about everything that was contrary to the gospel itself. They had made the reason that they gather. They had made the very center of their faith about everything other than what had been delivered to them in the gospel of Jesus Christ. They had made it about worldly ideologies and philosophies. Gnosticism, most notably, was being held up by the Galatians. They were practicing their religion in ways that substituted for the sacrifice of Christ instead of celebrating that sacrifice and what he had accomplished for it. Basically, they were completely missing the point. That's why Paul begins the letter by going, what's wrong with you people? And that's how he approaches them and makes his argument as he sets it forth throughout the book. They wanted it to be what they could earn. They wanted salvation to be something they could achieve or attain to. They wanted to determine what was okay with God instead of asking him what was okay or even taking it from his word that was already revealed. And Paul says to them, these are all elementary principles. These are fundamentals of understanding the gospel that you have forsaken the gospel with. You have returned to the enslavement that you knew before Christ. But these are false teachings. And so when he comes to verse 9, he says this. But now, but now, what is the but now? It's, it's when they came to know Christ. It's when they believed in him. It's when they understood the gospel that God sent Jesus to fulfill the law in his perfect life and become the perfect sacrifice for sin in his death, that God might apply Jesus's death to them and forgive and uh, cleanse them from sin, redeeming their life so that he could apply Jesus's righteousness to them in their new life. And Paul says this, that you've not only been delivered from your enslavement, but you've been adopted as sons and daughters of God. You've become heirs of God. You are going to inherit the riches with Christ. What greater promise could there be? And yet they were walking away from this, pursuing false idols in the name of pleasure, comfort, and every other opportunity. What a powerful truth we see here. 
That in Christ we are delivered from this enslavement of eternal condemnation and brought into a relationship with God. Paul sets forth what I want us to see today of three important aspects of salvation. Not only in these two verses, but I'll show you in the surrounding verses. These are important aspects that he had to remind the Galatians of, and we need to be reminded of today because we have the same propensity of the Galatians to forsake the riches of Christ that we've been given and run after all of the worldly treasures of religion, of worldly ideologies and philosophies. Three important aspects of salvation. Number one is this. Salvation is secured by God's divine plan in the perfect life and the finished work of Jesus on the cross. His death, his burial, and his resurrection. You see, Paul will go on to kind of flesh this out, if you will, when he talks about God's divine plan in our coming to know God through Jesus Christ. Paul explains this more fully in verses 21 through the end of the chapter in chapter 4 when he uses the analogy of Hagar and Sarah. And he says to them, he says, you know, Abraham and Sarah knew the promise of God. They knew that God had promised them that he was going to make them more numerous than the stars. But the reality of life was overwhelming to them. They were long since past birthing years and they had no child who would be the inheritance. Therefore, instead of trusting the promise, we know the story all too well. Sarah comes to Abraham and says, I'm never going to give you a baby. I'm well beyond 80 years of age. Take my slave, Hagar, have a child through her and that will give you an heir so you can do something to fulfill God's promise to you. And from Hagar, Abraham fathered Ishmael. And we know this, that it was not God's sovereign plan to fulfill his promise through Ishmael but rather he would give Sarah a child at a, according to Sarah, laughable age, around 90, give or take, right? Does it matter the give or take when it's at 90 and you find out you're pregnant? I don't think so, I don't think so. You see, the point that Paul is making is this. Abraham and Sarah knew the promise of God but that impulse of self-salvation is so strong, they implemented their own plan instead of trusting God's promise. Friends, you and I are so frail and so prone to the same wrongness that we need to understand the gospel that it is God's divine plan that has secured our perfect life in the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul, when he writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he goes straight to the heart of the matter in verses 3 and 4. He says, I delivered to you as of first importance what you can never put aside in any secondary manner. 
And here is what is of first importance, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Friends, this is the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ is not what God does for you. It is not what God does in you or through you, but it is what he has finished in Jesus Christ on the cross to conquer sin, that there might even be a way for you to know him. You say, but what's the difference in those two? Here's the difference. When you begin to believe that it is your salvation at the center of the gospel, you will begin to believe that you get to negotiate with God how that comes about. That just like the Galatians, you'll begin to decide what's right and wrong for God instead of seeing what he has revealed in right and wrong in his word. Churches in whole slews will begin to move and determine this is okay because God would never, instead of just reading the revelation of his word, which says, you're right, he would never and he won't today either. The point I am making is this, friends. When the gospel moves away from Jesus Christ, his perfect life, his perfect death and finished work in conquering the grave for us, we've taken the first step to what we call today deconstruction. We've taken the first step to walking away from God, to not fully submitting our life to him, but beginning to negotiate with him because the inkling and impulse in our heart to find a way to save ourselves is so strong. We'll even substitute our abilities for Christ's finished work. But friends, this is the heart of the gospel. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture. And this stays uppermost. This is the first most important aspect of salvation. Not what God does in or through us, but what he has done to conquer sin in Jesus Christ that there would be a way that we could know him. The second important aspect is this, that salvation means we are redeemed to a new identity. We are redeemed to a new identity. Paul fleshes this out in the first seven verses of chapter four when he talks about you were once enslaved, but because of Jesus Christ, you've been adopted to become an heir with Christ. You know, most slaves just want to get out of jail. Most slaves just want to, to have a little bit of freedom on their own. But God says, that's not sufficient for those that I save. I'm not just giving you a little bit of portion. I'm giving you the whole kingdom. The whole inheritance will be yours in Christ Jesus and this is so important for us. How could God do that? How could he take us from a slave to sin and make us a co-heir with Christ, adopted as sons and daughters, but he makes us new. He redeems us from all sin within us. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 21, captures all of this in one verse in this new identity. When Paul writes and says this, for our sake, he made made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become 
the righteousness of God. Listen, friends, this is not talking about our wrong actions which are produced out of our sinful nature. It's speaking of the very identity of who we are, first without Christ, but also because of Christ. When we hear the gospel and we believe in Jesus because of his blood, we are redeemed. We are forgiven our sin debt against God. Justified is the legal term that the Bible uses to teach us that no more are the claims against us held against us because they've been put on Christ and done away with. We are cleansed in our soul. We are no longer defined by being sin stained, but we've been cleansed and washed by the blood of Jesus and no longer are we unrighteous but because of Jesus Christ because we have been forgiven and cleansed his righteousness is put upon us as if it is ours because it is that's what salvation is about friends and that's what we need to understand it's not about righting all your wrong actions but it is principally about what the scripture teaches a whole new you it's a new identity and look at the look at the identity exchange that takes place here in second corinthians 5 21 when it's not just talking about actions but there is an identity to be embraced jesus was made to be sin he did not commit sin don't ever believe and do not ever tolerate for a moment any teaching that infers or directly teaches that Jesus transgressed, committed an iniquity, or was sinful in any way. That is counter to the gospel. It is false teaching. It cannot be verified in the Bible, and you should not entertain it in your life. When it says he didn't even cry as a baby, there's a reason. Why? Because moms and dads come to know the cries of hunger and the cries of upsetness and the cries of drama and fits and all of those kinds of things. But there wasn't any confusion with baby Jesus. He was content, even as an infant. Perfect. Perfect in every way. And let me tell you something, friends. If you begin to entertain something otherwise, number one, you've jumped ship from the Scripture. You've begun to entertain worldly ideologies and philosophies and you all of a sudden don't have a savior that is sufficient to take your place on the cross, you better be figuring out another way to answer to God for it. That's what that teaching leads to. But praise God, he was perfect in every way. That's why Paul says, God made him who knew no sin, perfect, to be sin, identity, so that in him we might become better people, Outweighing our bad deeds with our good deeds? No. Righteous. That's identity, friends. The very core of who we are. That's why when the Bible speaks of salvation, it talks about it like this. We're transformed, made new from within, a whole new, different kind. We're born again. It's like why Nicodemus said to Jesus, well, well, I don't know how that's supposed to happen physically. That's not going to happen. What are you talking about? Every person is born of the water, but in order to know God, you must be born of the Spirit. We are made new. We are a new creation. The old has gone, Paul said. The new has come. We are made alive unto God 
with Christ Jesus. You see, friends, the second important understanding of salvation is that God's purpose in sending Jesus was to take our sin on him in his death so his righteousness could be placed on us. We get credit for the perfect life that he lived. The third important aspect of salvation is this. Salvation means our new identity produces a new life of walking in obedience to God's word by Holy Spirit's power. This new identity that he's placed upon us and in us produces a new life. A perfect life? No. No, the perfection that we get credit for is not ours, but it is a new life of faith in him and in his work for us. That's why Galatians 2.19 and 20 tells us this, for through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. You see, when you become a Christian, there is a death that you entertain and enter into by faith. It is Christ's death for you. Romans chapter six, verse three, four, and five When it teaches us about baptism, this is what spiritual baptism is, is that by faith we enter into Christ's death that he died for us so that by faith we can walk by the power of Holy Spirit in us in the life that he lived for us. Being changed from glory to glory more and more into the image of Jesus Christ, God's son. God is working to conform you. And so Paul says in verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. By faith we are crucified. By faith we are resurrected. And the life we live in this world, on this earth, is a life of faith and walking in the truth revealed as our life. From his word. That's why Paul says, The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul goes on to flesh this out even in Galatians in chapter 5 when he says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. A yoke of slavery. Just before you walk out the house every morning, Do you look at the hat rack and you choose which yoke you're going to put on on that day? Lord, am I going to put on your yoke that is light, that is uh, uh, removing the burdens of my life? Or am I going to put on that yoke of sin that's heavy, that weighs me down, leads me away from you? That's what Paul is teaching us. He makes this point he makes it even again in, in second, or 1 Corinthians chapter 6 when he's speaking to the issue of sexual purity. And it says, you're not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, you should glorify God with your body. You see, friends, living in this new identity from Jesus means that we walk distinctively according to his word by the power of Holy Spirit. And friends, every time you read in the word... What you know you can't do, what you think you don't want to do, or what you've never done. And that'll be new if you ever do. You say, well, how am I supposed to do that, Pastor? That's what the Holy Spirit does. You submit. You surrender. And by the power of the Spirit, you walk in obedience. It's what God wants to do through you. 
and in you. By faith in Jesus Christ, we are brought into a personal relationship with God. No longer enslaved to the false idols of the world, nor to the false hope of religion. Friends, this is why relationship is the first core value of this church. Because it's only by relationship with God through Jesus Christ do we live and move and have our being and does it determine everything about our life, not only with God but also with one another, which is the underlying premise of today's message. Nothing will make sense until relationship with God is settled in Jesus Christ. Oh, it'll make sense in a worldly frame of thinking. It'll even work for a time. Bring a measure of glory and a measure of success. But even that glory and success will be the very thing that ends up crushing you. You see, that's what Paul says in verse 8. He says, formerly when you did not know God. He, he defines life before Christ as being enslaved to false idols. Enslaved to those things that are by very nature not God's. What does he mean by that? He means that they're not worthy to sustain the demand of your life upon them. They will confuse you, they will deceive you, and they will lead you to believe that you can conquer, achieve, or earn them. That's what every religion and worldly ideology and philosophy does. If you implement this, you get that. And man, when you get that, you got it all. That's a lie. You don't have it all. You have all they could consider that they want to give you. But most importantly, they have whatever the fee was that they charged you to get it all with. And that was the aim in the first place. But none of those get you to Jesus. Only by faith in Christ and his finished work for you. And so that's why Paul says, formerly when you did not know. But verse 9, he begins, but now you have come to know God. Things aren't the same way they used to be. Your life isn't the way it was before you knew Jesus Christ. Now that you have come to know God, I would tell you, Christian, that if you ever need to write a testimony, and you should be doing this regularly, verse 8 and verse 9 give you a great outline. Before I knew Christ, my life was like this, but because of Christ, this is what's happened to my life. There is a distinct kind of life to not knowing God, and Jesus changes that to a distinctiveness for knowing God. Paul turns from the reality of what was true to now what is true because of Jesus, and here's what he says, but now you have come to know God. That word for know is, is the New Testament Greek word that, that means a lot more than just data download. It's an experiential knowledge. It's a relational knowledge. And, and really, it, it spans the spectrum, everything from the intellect of knowing all the way to referring to sexual intimacy between a husband and a wife, the deepest form of human knowing. And, and it, it covers the full spectrum of what he is saying here. It is intimacy beyond belief. It is experiential. It is personal. It is what we would call relationship. The intimacy of knowing God and the intimacy of knowing how well he knows us. You see, by faith in Jesus, we come to the knowledge of God that we never had before, nor could we have on our own. Let me just pause for a moment and try to 
try to drive this home a little more and, and illustrate it a little better. Do you remember what your life was like before Christ? Praise God if you were saved at a young age and you don't have to wrestle through the burdens of darkness in your mind that remain when you lived years in rebellion against God. Thank him for that. That's a blessing, immeasurable. But friends, that's not true of all of us. Life before God is a description that I don't care to entertain for you right now. Dark beyond belief. And I know, I've talked to some of you, I've heard your testimonies. Yours as well. It's not a comparative issue, it's just a situation where we know how deeply our sin had deceived us and how far from God it had led us. And hear me, if you don't know my testimony, I'm the son of a preacher. I grew up in the church from the very beginning. I was close every day of my life to a faithful gospel and a faithful biblical teaching of the gospel. My darkness was not because of there were being no voices in my life to tell me about the light of God like some of yours were. I know some of you grew up far from the church, far from any gospel influence. I didn't. I've never known a day of my life without the love of God in me. But I've known more than I care to count about saying no. Not today, God. I don't want to be bothered with it. Let me ask you another question. Do you remember? Do you remember when the light of the glory of the face of God in the, or, or, of God in the face of Jesus Christ broke through? And you, that, that moment that God changed you forever? Do you remember that? I remember. It was late into the night because that's when I did my best living. When nothing good happens, that was the hour my mother called it. Nothing good happens after that hour, Lane. She was right. And that's why I wanted to be awake at that hour. But friends, on this night, in the darkness, as I was trying to go to sleep, and my soul was restless beyond compare, there would be no rest for Lane until after hours of telling God what I had done for him, why he needed to leave me alone and, and, and don't continue to hound me with these things. Have you not seen what I've done even at such a young age? And yet all the while knowing it's not enough. It won't ever be enough. But it doesn't have to be. And in the early hours of the morning, after a number of hours of arguing with God, going, that's it. Can't do this anymore. I know I need you. And I know that's the only way that all of this gets made right. And from that day, everything changed. Did everything immediately change in my day-to-day -day walk? Absolutely not. Did everything change in my heart? It absolutely did. 
there was a discomfort in my continual practice of sin that would all of a sudden drive me to Christ instead of more of the same. And that was the change. Friends, do you remember these things? This is what Paul is appealing to us. But now that you have come to know God, you don't live the same way. You don't think the same way. You don't process in your mind and respond the same way. And when you do, you know you don't want to. You don't feel the same way. You don't sense, perceive. There's nothing the same about you. And here's what Paul wants you to know about that moment. That when you came to know God is better to be understood in this way. Or rather, he says. To be known by God. Is that not the aim of all religion? Is that not the promise of all religion? If you'll do these things. Here's the problem that I have understood about religion through the years. In many different religions, Christianity and its religious form as well. If we do enough, we can get to God. Here's the promise, or here's the problem with that though. You never know if you get there. It's this way in Islam. It's this way in Hinduism. It's this way in every man-made religion in the world. You do, you strive, you toil, you work, you, earn, you try to earn, you try to achieve, but you just never know if you get there. You never know where you are. You see, in Christianity, you don't have to worry about if you get there because God has come to you. He's here for you. You don't have to wonder if you've gotten to God, if you know God. You can know that you are known by God. And that's a better way, Paul says, of understanding our relationship with God. You are known by God. How well does God know us? Uncomfortably well is what Psalm 139 tells us. It doesn't say it that well. But when you begin to read it and think about God's knowledge of you, that's what you begin to feel. He knows your every movement, your every thought, and your every motive. That's already uncomfortable, is it not? He knows where you are headed and he knows how you will get there. Not only in your physical direction, but in your mental rationalizing and justifying in your life. He knows what you want to say and what you will say, even if it doesn't come out of your mouth. When we run away and hide, we do not run from his sight because he has perfect knowledge and presence. He is there. You see, what God knows about us is too much for us to know about ourselves. That's what the psalmist says. This knowledge is too wonderful, too glorious for me. But that's not all he knows. There's more. God not only knows who we are, he knew us before we were. He's the one that formed our inward parts. And not just our internal organs, our intellect, our emotions, and our psyche of this physical life. He is the one that formed our spirit and even our eternal soul within us. He saw us when some would, what they would call a clump of cells. He looked at it and he said, I see you and I love you. 
No part of who you are is outside of God's perfect knowledge because it tells us that he created us in his image. And the reason life is impossible without Jesus is because we were created for Jesus Christ. And until we have him and he has us, nothing will be right with you. That's what Paul is capturing him here. You have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God. You see, verse 9 is the antithesis and the explanation of verse 8. He's telling us what it means to know God because he saved us and, and to be known by God because we have been made alive and he is revealing himself within us on a day-by-day -day basis through the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is working even now to lead us into a deeper knowledge from our understanding closer to God's understanding of us. Friends, once you did not know God, but now that you have come to know God, it is because you are known by God. Is this not the cry of the soul? Not just to know others, but to be known. Let me ask you this. If, if you're a parent, or if you've ever worked with children, this is probably true. Unfortunately, it's true of a lot of adults. You ever had somebody tell you, you just don't understand me? You just don't understand me. Very likely, you've used that very argument. Why do I say that? Because that is the leading rationale for every sin. Lord, you just don't understand me. These people don't get me. They don't understand how much I deserve. They don't understand, you know, the little things I've done in secret. Or, and we begin to say all of these little things that rationalize. But it's all this. I just want to be known. Everyone cries out to be understood because we are desperate to be known. And God says this, I know you. I know you. And I love you. And I want you to know that you are known by me. That's what the gospel says to us. And that's why this Life Together series is so important, friends, because God commands his people to live in community for this very purpose, to be known by other Christ followers. Life Together, to know and to be known that we might be daily reminded, I am known by him. I am known by him. You see, relationship with God produces a life of authenticity together to be known in Christian community. That's what relationship with God produces. This, this life of, of, of growing ever more into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And how is it but through a community that is centered on Christ, carrying out the work of God in us through that. And so I, I say to you today, before I finish this message with three simple applications, I have an agenda today. I have an agenda every day. Don't be surprised by that. But I want to share today's agenda with you. It's simply this. I, I'm laboring to see every adult at LifePoint in community because it's God's design for you. Not because everybody in the world is talking about it, and they are. You can find community anywhere you want to find it today. I've recently been introduced to the pickleball community. Scariest thing I've ever met in my life. But I'm telling you, you need a community centered on Christ to cultivate the work of God that is going on in you 
because of the work of God that has taken place for you. That's his purpose. Three faithful applications for why every Christian should immerse their life in life together of Christian community. The first faithful application is a one for God. Life together in Christian community forms the oneness of God's people to serve as his dwelling place in the world. This is what his word teaches us, that the purpose of God is he is creating a place for himself to dwell by his spirit in the world. Ephesians chapter 2 says that we are being built together. God is building us. He's doing a work that we might become a holy temple to the Lord in this world. If we want more Jesus in the world, we need more Christians in life together. Peter says the same thing, that his purpose for redeeming us is that in our oneness, he might, or we might declare his excellencies to the world. So life together is the church's first act of faithful witness in the world, both in gathered worship and in community. The second faithful application is the one for you. First one for God, the second one is for you. Life together in Christian community is where the gospel produces the authenticity of life for all that God has redeemed us to be. Hear me, God uses imperfect instruments and vessels, other people, to form his perfect righteousness evermore in you. Isn't that a glory? We don't have to find perfect people to see God's work completed. He works through imperfect people every day. And you see Psalm 139 that declares that God knows you perfectly. He's not declaring that over the person he wants you to be. He's saying that about the person that you are and the one that he's redeemed you to be. Creation reminds us that God created us to have a relationship with us. But the gospel tells us that he made a way so that he can. He has redeemed us. And in the gospel, his redemptive purpose is to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the standard and the measure of Christian maturity. And God's not finished until you are complete. Just like Jesus. That's what he's doing. By his grace at work in us and through his word, he completes this work as we grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus. You see, God established Christian community as the place for authenticity to grow as we discover and pursue by our participation to become ever more the person God has redeemed us to be. And the third reason is this, for God's kingdom mission. You see, life together in Christian community is where the gospel goes forth so others can hear and be saved. Every account of the Great Commission in the New Testament is written to every Christian ever. And so what does it tell us? Matthew tells us to go and, and uh, make disciples of all nations. Mark tells us to go into all creation and preach the gospel. Luke tells us that we will be shrouded. We'll be cloaked with the power of God's Holy Spirit so we will be faithful witnesses in every place that we go. He repeats that in Acts chapter one, and then the day of Pentecost comes. Uh, John tells us that, that we are uh, being renewed, made new to proclaim the gospel of newness in Christ and the gospel of God's love. 
And then Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, what I believe is his great commission, that we are made new to live for the one who for us died. We no longer live for ourselves, but for him. Why? Because we've been made a new creation. And as a new creation, we are his ambassadors, given both the ministry and the message of reconciliation to show and to share the world or the love of God with the whole world. Friends, every religion, every ideology, and every philosophy other than the gospel makes God or heaven something you can attain to or achieve. It just never gets you there. You work, strive, labor, and toil, but you never know if you arrive because you don't. But that's not so with the gospel. Until you are known by God, no one else knowing you will be sufficient to satisfy you. But once you come to know God, to understand that you are known by God, you will understand everything else in light of his knowledge of you. Relationship with God produces a life of authenticity together to be known in Christian community. I'm going to ask the worship team to return. And as they're coming, let me offer two invitations today. Two invitations. The first invitation is this. If you are here today and you've never come to a point in your life where you've repented of your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ to become a Christian, the Spirit of God is working right now to invite you and to draw you to God. You see, God didn't want you to show up with him this morning. He showed up to be with you. And that's what the gospel teaches us. God is here and he is waiting for your faith so that he can bestow his forgiveness and cleansing on you. And friends, there may be many questions that you have in your life, but none of them will matter until this one gets settled. Do you know that you are known by God? Christ brings that kind of knowledge to you, not only in your mind, but in your heart and in your soul, out of which you can live confidently walking with God by His grace through faith. If you're here today and you've never become a Christian, I'm inviting you today to put your faith in Jesus Christ and become a Christian. You say, well, I've known Christians I didn't like. So have I. I didn't even like this Christian. A lot of times. You say, well, I've got problems with the church. So do I. I'm the biggest one, to be quite honest. That's not what I'm asking you and inviting you to today. Do you know that you are known by God? That's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm inviting you to receive today. Secondly, if you're here today and you are a Christian, you know where the, uh, where the gospel is speaking to you today because the Spirit of God is working in you. Don't walk out of here today until you say, yes, Lord, whatever you have for me is what I want in my life. Have your way.